1: I'm John Fort. You're listening to CNBC's Tech Check. Our show is live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Listen in.
2: Good Wednesday morning. Welcome to Tech Check. I'm Carl Catania with Deirdre Bosa. Neil A. Patel of The Verge is with us for the hour. Today, fintech's final hours as the sector closes out a tough 2021. We're going to break down how the disruptors are themselves being disrupted. Then tech's biggest catalyst for 2022, from Uber to Netflix to Amazon – Uh, the new products and announcements that could determine their fate in the new year. And then finally, that big pile of cash in Silicon Valley. We've talked fundraising and SPACs and IPOs. We'll take a deeper look at how capital is being used inside (laughs) tech companies to lure employees, win customers, and finance investments, Steve.
3: Carl, the Dow is higher, Nasdaq lower. Tech continues to underperform at the moment, but we are still sitting near all time highs for the broader indices. And we are keeping an eye on Apple. It is still just inches from that $3 trillion market cap. And we're also waiting on a verdict for Theranos founder Elizabeth Holmes as we head into day six of jury deliberations not far from here in San Jose. First, we're going to take a look at a sector that has severely underperformed over the last few weeks, and that is fintech. Now, guys, this was supposed to be fintech's year. by now, pay later, crypto, retail investor, the IPOs of Coinbase and Robinhood, not to mention all of that online and digital commerce that has been happening over the last 18 months. What's happening instead, though, investors, well, they're actually returning to the incumbents. Take a look at shares of Visa and MasterCard. They have each jumped more than 10 percent over the last month. While the more recently public names like Affirm and SoFi, they're down double digits. So question is, guys, is the hype of the upstarts wearing off within those names? There is a divergence as well. The names that are tied more closely to crypto, Coinbase and Robinhood, they now have the lowest multiple on an EV to sales basis in the group. And Square's recent rebranding that embraces Bitcoin and blockchain hasn't done the stock any favor since that change. The company is on track Nile for its first yearly decline since it went public back in 2015, I guess the question here is that a lot of these trends, crypto, the retail investor, buy now, pay later, I don't, I don't think anyone thinks that they're really going to go anywhere next year. So can these incumbents kind of hold on? Can they move quick enough? Or is this just a pause?
4: I think it's a pause. I think this is a pretty classic trove disillusionment, right? You ride the hype cycle. There's a lot of energy in the space. We're going to reinvent everything. And then the reality of execution sets in, and that's right next to the reality of having to change an enormous amount of consumer behavior, especially around the holidays, uh, as people shift the way they spend money, which is really the fundamental of all of these companies. You're trying to get a lot of people to change how they spend money. That's going to take a lot of time.
2: Yeah, it is interesting, Neelay, when you think about the – I mean, if this – if the legacy uh, payment companies are able to start to take a knockout of the upstarts with this, what happens when they really put their own uh, pedal to the metal? I all think it's, also think it's interesting looking at that chart. Um, you can see what happened to a firm late in the year, all because of that relationship with Amazon. And one more comment on what happens when you're able to plug into that kind of scale.
4: Yeah, I think, look, Amazon wants to change the way you spend money at a a major rate. I think the question is whether they can actually convince people, especially in the fourth quarter when, you know, the the holiday shopping period brings people back to their habits. I think there's a big question whether Amazon's scale can actually do the things Amazon wants or whether it's just going to take time.
3: Yeah scale in fintech, though, as we've seen, guys, isn't necessarily the key here. I mean, Visa is what a nearly $500 billion company it has been making a lot of investments in the space, but hasn't been, some might argue, super nimble. I mean, it was a little bit the buy now pay later trend really disrupts the rails, the whole thesis. So we'll see what happens. And we're going to stay with the opportunities here. Our next guest recently lowered his price targets for Firm Square and PayPal, but he maintained his buy ratings. Mizuho Managing Director Dan Dolev joins us now. Dan, Good morning, and great to have you with us. Hi, good morning. Uh, you know, investors were so excited about this young, active base that Robinhood and Coinbase promised, but they've been slow to sort of cross-sell different products. Is that them being slow to the punch, or is it users, not this young base of users, not really buying into it, buying into other products?
0: I think when you talk about, thanks again for having me on the show, when you talk about names like Coinbase, uh, specifically, what we're seeing here is we're seeing some worries—not so much the engagement; people are using it very often—but we're seeing more worries uh, from the investor community about shrinking yields or shrinking take rates, and that's what's actually holding the stocks um, kind of backward. Because if you think about their shares in in Bitcoin or or elsewhere, they're actually gaining share. So it's you know more volume at a smaller take rate or a smaller spread, and I think that's what's concerning. I think that people are actually still using those apps pretty widely. That's the question.
3: They're using them widely, but I mean, if you think about the transaction costs, the take rate that they're getting, that is likely set to decline, right? And the whole premise is that they're going to be able to sell other products. Engagement, too, when you look at a Coinbase and Robinhood, that can sometimes rely on things like crypto prices or meme stock action. So where do they have to go from here? How do they have to expand their business?
0: That's a great question. So I think two separate answers. One for Coinbase specifically, they need to go deeper into, say, more institutional, you know, institutional um, Bitcoin, more um, NFTs, et cetera. That's what's going to get them, you know, kind of like that uh, deeper engagement with the consumer. For Robinhood specifically, and that's been the promise, but also the issue, the big kind of promise for Robinhood is the kind of one-stop shop bank. And if they can actually do this, this is going to be a home run. But I think there's still a show me here and a wait and see because they haven't they haven't delivered yet on that. So that's kind of the cross selling you're talking about. If they do it, it's going to be very, very successful. But the onus is on them to actually prove that they can do it.
4: I think my question is, I, I buy that about Robinhood, right? You want to build a new kind of bank, build a new kind of financial behavior, especially with young people. Is Coinbase making the same promise? Right. Because Coinbase is really pretty coupled to the price of crypto. That's where the energy in the crypto markets come from. What does Coinbase need to build to decouple itself from that volatility?
0: You know, they need to actually, this is, a, you know, this is the, the, the main issue that you're hitting. Uh, they are all about fee-based trading, right? And, and I think what's happening to them is that you're getting companies like Square, called BlockNow, et cetera. We're basically saying we're going to decentralize everything and we're going to make everything free. So their business model is challenged. So where do they need to go? They probably need to go deeper into where the other guys are and maybe start offering more products like lending or banking products, which is kind of what Robinhood is doing, what Square or Block is doing. So they need to go, if they're being on, they're being attacked on the fees, they have to go and counterattack on the banking side. So in my view, if you actually start good, becoming more of a bank, um, because the app is very popular and you can leverage it to giving uh, loans, mortgages, et cetera. So kind of being a mix between you know, Robinhood Square and, say, like a SoFi. That could be good for Coinbase, but I'm not seeing progress there.
2: You know, it's interesting, Dan, you mentioned that, uh, and, and fees in general. I wonder, we've been talking about deflation in financial services for so long, uh, but we've reached this point where it's zero commissions everywhere, and the models are getting their revenue from things like payment for order flow, in some cases the lion's share of their revenue. I wonder, do you think that means that we've sort of bottomed out in deflation uh, in in financial services overall?
0: It's a good question. I mean, I don't know the, you know, I don't know where it's headed. But I think that at the end of the day, if you think about, you know, three years from now, everything that's fee based right now, like crypto trading is going to be free. So I I actually think that the Robinhood model is more sustainable than the Coinbase model, because they're already offering for free. Now, Mm. there's an issue with uh pay pay for order flow etc like we don't know where it's headed but charging these very high fees from the consumer is very dangerous because at the end of the day it's all going to be free so i think there's more convergence and you know it's just like you know the td ameritrays of the world or the clubs the fees are going to be almost zero at the end of the day and that's you know my view
3: OK, so, Dan, what does that mean for the rails, the visas and MasterCards of the world? Are you surprised that uh, investors have sort of gone back to them over the last month? They're outperforming. What is the longer term bet here? Is it the upstarts or do you think that the legacy players can innovate quick enough to catch up or not be disrupted?
0: Yeah, I think the disruption theme on, on the networks, and, and that's a great point, the disruption theme on the networks is, is very, very interesting. And there's there's a lot there, but it's further down the road. What's been hurting the networks, I think, at the end of the day is, like, the cash to card. Like, are, do we have enough, uh, you know, about two-thirds of the growth, for example, for Visa comes from cash to card conversion. So, you know, you ask yourself the question, how often do you still pay with cash today versus, you know, like, the you know, pre-COVID? So I'm not surprised to see that. And I think the upside for the networks, and that's something that's, you know, coming and and it's going to come, cross-border trade. Cross-border is 10 times more profitable for the networks than uh, regular transactions, right? You're talking about almost 1% take rate versus 10 basis points for a domestic transaction. As flights come back, you know, Mm -hmm. now we have a new variant. But at the end of the day, it's all going to end. People are going to fly again. People are going to hotels again. And I think the numbers are probably going to be revised upwards for Visa and Mastercard. And I think that's the reason the stocks are are, are performing. Yeah. Less concern about the uh, disruption at this point; more near term fundamentals.
3: Okay. In the longer term, though, when we talk about cross border tr- cross border, that is certainly a profitable part. But isn't the whole premise of crypto and blockchain going to disrupt that? So. You know, what is your time frame here? Do you think that it's going to take a lot longer for something like crypto to disrupt those kinds of transactions? And can Visa and MasterCard sort of avoid that? What can they do?
0: You know, it's, it's a very it's a very loaded question. I'll try to give you the answer. So at the end of the day, I think in, in five, six years, I think you're right. I think that, you know, crypto, what, what Jack Dorsey's working on at, at Block, which is a, a, the TBDX protocol, which is basically a, you know, going to it, – it's challenging Coinbase's model. But in a way, it also could challenge the networks because if you could transfer money between people in different countries yeah. without a fee, then, then you do that. I think what's, what people are underestimating is habits because at the end of the day, you go to a mm-hmm. hotel, you pull out your card. So you're going to have to change pe- the way people do things. So I still think that those business models are viable uh, at least for the next you know two, three, four years – what happens after that, I agree with you. Yeah. There, there's going to be more disruption down the road.
3: <laughs> yeah, I remember even it, it, with Alipay's model, if that was going to sort of disrupt the rails. And uh, I think Al Kelly of Visa said that it was something that they didn't think was going to happen for a long time. But now you've got crypto. And as we see, the pandemic has changed habits quicker probably than anyone expected. Dan, as always, thank you so much for your insights. We'll talk to you again soon you. And, and have a great new year. Thank you. Happy New Year. One
2: trend we've talked about all year, maybe more than any other, has been the impact of mega cap tech on the overall markets. Our senior markets commentator, Mike Santoli, is back with us. Talk about how that's impacted trading in 2021, Mike, and whether there's anything uh, that might alter the trajectory of that uh, dynamic in the coming year.
5: Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because...
1: Yeah, I mean, the mean reversion idea has some merit to it at this point in terms of it's been it's not been the few going up at the expense of the average stock, but it's been, you know, just the the magnitudes. Um, You know, I was looking at Microsoft uh, just for one, which I have long said is really the most important stock in the market over Apple, just because it's a more pure uh, measure of demand for the classic tech business model. That's not really about I love the product. I'm going to buy the stock. Well, that's responsible for about one-sixth almost of the net S&P 500 gain this year. Is, is Microsoft going to go up 53% again next year on a $2.5 trillion uh, market cap right now? That's kind of <laughs> unclear, and that's really a hard bet to make, right? But I would feel worse about this trend if it was... Obscuring some kind of scary macro message going on in the under the surface of the market. Right now, that's not really the case. There has been a little bit of a tilt to a defensive, classic defensive sectors in December. So that's something to monitor. Uh, so I think it's like, what are people complaining about when they're complaining about mega cap dominance? Is it just that you've had less of a chance to beat the market? Is it that it's giving you a false idea of the market's underlying strength supply and supply demand? Maybe it's it's all of that. But when the equal weighted Russell to Russell 1000 is up twenty something percent on the year it's hard to say that it's been just a handful of stocks you know pulling the market higher and the rest doing nothing
2: Right. i wonder though you know take kathy woods overall uh, philosophy mike that there's a basket of generational change in a i and in robotics and in battery storage and in mobility and not to say that it's gonna necessarily move the revenue needle or the earnings needle but it's going to give a a cushion to any would-be fall in sentiment regarding these mega cap names?
1: Potentially. I mean, again, I I don't know exactly. It's about what's your starting valuation point when you buy into those trends or how you try to capture some kind of return off of them. Um, You know, I remember, I mean, this is probably a, sounds like a trivial example, but I remember 15 years ago when people saying nanotechnology was going to be the, you know, really the thing to watch. And it's there. It's revolutionizing things. Uh, I remember Linux. That was the that was the proto Bitcoin, in my opinion. It was this open source free thing, and there was one stock you could use to play it, right, Red Hat, and it went nuts. And then eventually, it just became part of the fabric, and big companies platforms found a way to absorb and, and benefit from it. So I, I I think it's a hard game to try and sort of pick the winners on these visible but you know uh, hard to uh, hard to handicap longer term secular trends.
3: You know, Mike, I think Carl and I are ago this morning. I had the exact same question about Kathy Wood's thesis. And, you know, the fourth industrial revolution does this time somewhat different. The examples that you use, Mike, they didn't have the digital transformation of the pandemic behind them. Could this time be different because of those trends and because it looks like we're going to be in this hybrid workplace for longer? Payments are changing, as we just talked about, and some of these other trends could persist.
1: Obviously, it could be the case that we've accelerated things. Um, You know, one way I would think about conceptualizing the ARK philosophies, think of it a little more as venture type investing, where it's like, look, you you know the general trends. You want to put a lot of money to work behind those trends in whatever five or six different areas. And chances are your handful of of humongous winners are going to take care of a lot of stuff that kind of goes to or near zero. Um, You know, Tesla. Is the best example of a 10% position in ARC, w- without which, can you imagine what the performance would be this year, right? So, uh, you know, that to me makes a little bit more sense. Yeah, the pandemic effect, to me, it's, it, it shouldn't be a mystery to the market by now. We're two years into this. I think the market has sorted out exactly what that is going to mean for right. long term cash flows to some degree right now.
3: Right. So, more baked in. Uh, Mike, thanks as always. After the break, one hour delivery from Amazon. What happened with that? And what about subscribing to Uber Prime? Don't miss Evercore's Catalyst for 2022. There's lots more ahead. Tech Check is just getting started. Let's get a gut check on Rivian shares are in the red today. They're down more than five percent after the CEO announced that deliveries of its electric pickup and SUV that use large battery packs are delayed until 2023. That stock, though, still up since its electric IPO in November, but it's now down more than 40 percent from its highs. Speaking of EVs, let's take a look at Tesla as well that has been on a run over the last week. CEO Elon Musk has now exercised all of his options expiring next year, bringing the total to over 22 million stock options since the spree began last month. He also sold around 15.7 million shares since posting that Twitter poll in early November asking if he should sell. For those that are keeping track, yes, 22 is more than 15.7. So Musk will actually end up with more (laughs) shares than when he <laughs> began selling, which makes this complicated, guys, to figure out.
2: Yeah, yeah. W- one of the untold stories, though, about that, uh, that selling cycle, he's going to have more Tesla than he did before. Uh, if you're an investor in technology, uh, what's going to move the needle in 2022? Mark Mahaney of Evercore ISI, very cool note laying out five catalysts to watch in the coming year, for example, Uber may be launching a subscription service, Amazon shortening delivery times, uh, Netflix, of course, getting into gaming. Uh, will those be the difference for those names? Mark joins us this morning to talk about uh, his note. Mark, I don't know how you want to handle this. Maybe pick the, um, the catalyst that you are zeroing in on the most because they're all interesting.
6: I think the most interesting one is what I call son of IDFA or daughter of IDFA or child of IDFA. And what I mean by that is we had this major change in advertising technology last year or the ability of marketers and platforms to target that was based on personalized information off of iPhones. That was ended. It caused a material disruption to a lot of marketers and it materially impacted Facebook. If there's a, a launch in 22 of a successor um, ad attribution platform that doesn't uh, uh, that doesn't deny or doesn't uh, hinder people's privacy, but allows marketers to have somewhat similar levels of efficiency in terms of their marketing campaigns. That will be the single biggest catalyst because it has ramifications for so many different uh, companies. So that's the it's number one I'm number one number one catalyst I'm looking for. Son of IDFA.
2: Yeah, that's that's very interesting, and you're right about the just the widespread impact. I think more interesting on a single stock story is the, your belief in the potential for a prime-like subscription service at Uber, which I think you are suggesting could be around $99.99, 100, 100 bucks, which would give you access to rides and delivery and groceries. I mean, sort of give me the odds on how, how likely you think this is.
6: Well, I want to step back just a little bit, Carl. So that product is actually out now in the market. It's been soft launched. It's called Uber One. And Uber has had different membership programs in the past. My question has always been, why wouldn't it be successful? These membership programs only work if it's a high frequency activity like Prime with Amazon, which has been a phenomenal customer acquisition and retention tool for that company. With Uber, you know, once we get back to mostly open economies, the number of times a week that the average person would either use Uber for delivery or for ride sharing. I mean, that's going to be a weekly app that creates the uh, opportunity for a for a monthly membership program like Uber One. So I I think that's a really interesting opportunity. And they're the only company that can do that across both delivery and, uh, and ride sharing. Dash can't do DoorDash can't do that, and Lyft can't do it. So it should be a real competitive advantage for Uber. What we're going to be listening for are signs that they've signed up five, and then 10, and then 15 million subs for that program. Uber One, that's one of the catalysts we're watching for.
4: Let me put those two ideas next to each other because I absolutely cannot resist an ad tech conversation Right. The, the decline of IDFA was Apple, saying so you can't do third-party cookies anymore. You can't track people across apps. That has led to a lot of effort to build super apps. We're seeing it, I think, maybe with Uber. Do you think the Facebooks and the Googles and the Amazons of the world are actually going to try to build a competitor to, or a replacement to IDFA that Apple approves? Or are they going to move towards big super apps that dominate your entire online activity?
6: That's a great question. That's a great setup. Eli. The, uh, I think the, uh, the, the the term I've heard used is content fortresses. Companies like Amazon have this inherent advantage, which is that they don't need to build a tool to track people all around the Internet because their ads and their transactions occur right on Amazon's platform. The the real the, the true workaround for Facebook is going to be if they can get people to actually uh, perform more and more commerce activities on Facebook's uh, platform itself so that they don't have to track you all over the, uh, uh, the and marketers don't have to track you all over the internet. So I, I don't know exactly how this is going to play out. I just know that the amount of money that we're talking about, I mean, it's not just Facebook. We're talking about millions of marketers who had really detailed attribution models that they no longer could use post the IDFA challenges at Apple. So there's an inherent interest and a lot of money at stake in getting us some sort of viable solution. It probably won't be as good as IDFA, but a viable solution. And with that much you know, at stake, my guess is that something is going to be worked out in a six to 12-month time uh, time frame, and that's going to be the catalyst.
3: Mark, we've been talking about super apps for years, and Uber, Facebook, others have been trying to do this. Uh, with very little success, we really have nothing that looks like WeChat over in China and the Chinese other super apps. Uh why is that? And do you think there could actually be a TikTok now? You know, the most popular app in the world that could be more successful in doing so and capturing a Western audience than any of our homegrown players?
6: It's possible, dear Jerry. You're asking the you know the hundred billion dollar question, and uh, I'm not sure I know the answer to it. I don't know whether it's a, it's a cultural or a difference, or I don't know whether it's that the, the app development hasn't been as well developed here in the, in, the, in the US, I don't know the answer to it. You're right, there hasn't been really a super app created. Now, that said, some of these companies have created a very broad array of services for consumers. I mean, Amazon's probably at the, at the top of that list, the broad uh, number of entertainment, shopping uh, um, uh, options you get out of uh, Amazon. So Amazon may well come closest to being that super app so far, but it is different than what you've seen in Asia. And it's, an, it's, a, it's a bit of a mystery.
2: Mark, uh, favorite uh, mega caps, Amazon, Facebook, and Uber. And next time we'll get to some of the large and small to mid. Uh, But a great note, we love having you all year long. Happy New Year, Mark. Mark Happy New Year, Carl. Thank you. Evercore ISI. Uh, Meantime, want to grow in the cloud business? You better have some cash and lots of it. We're going to have a look inside Google's latest tactic to win some more market share when we come back. Welcome back to Tech Check. I'm Carl Quintanilla with Deirdre Bosa. Neelay Patel of the Verge in a tie, still with us, so we are grateful uh, to Neelay for his time today. Markets relatively flattish here. Dow's hanging on to a 30-point gain. S&P briefly here uh, in the red. Uh, coming up, big tech's handing out big money, but will it pay off? We'll get more on that story in a moment. First, a news update with Rahel Solomon. Hi, Rahel.
7: Hi, Carl. Good morning, and here's what's happening at this hour. U.S. crude oil production has risen to its highest level since May of last year, but at the same time, inventories of crude, gasoline and oil distillates fell more than expected last week, and that's helping push crude prices up about 2% this morning. Crude stocks in the Strategic Petroleum Reserve are also down, they've dropped to their lowest level in more than 19 years. Penting home sales posting a surprise drop in November, a key index, fell more than 2% last month. Limited supplies of homes have been keeping sales down and prices up, sales were weaker across the country. U.S. trade deficit in goods jumped to a record high in November. Exports fell and imports rose, leading to a 17.5 percent jump in the deficit to nearly $98 billion. And no significant slowdown and flight disruptions today. More than 800 U.S. flights have been canceled this morning. Airlines continue to blame harsh winter weather and rising COVID cases among their workers. Deidre, I'll send it back to you.
3: Thank you for that, Rahel. Now, we focused a lot on the record levels of VC deals, SPACs, IPOs and share sales this year. But the cash in Silicon Valley here is also inside of companies and how they're deploying it is the topic of today's thread. We're going to break it down for you. First up, Apple reportedly giving out giant bonuses to top employees, up to one hundred and eighty thousand dollars in stock grants. Bloomberg reports that the atypical perk was presented as a reward for high performance, but it also comes as the company scrambles to retain talent here in the Valley, particularly to keep them from going to Facebook or Meta. But that is not the only space where big tech firms are spending huge amounts. Take a look at cloud. A story in the journal today highlights how Alphabet has been tapping its $142 billion war chest to build out its cloud business. Alphabet is increasingly making equity investments in companies ranging from the CME Group to Univision and in return asking those companies to use its cloud services. Lastly, another way that tech companies are using cash, the streaming war. Streamers are set to spend a combined $115 billion on new content in 2022, which Guys, it's just a staggeringly large number, one that I can't even get my head around. This is really cash as a weapon in tech. And these companies, increasingly, they're going on the offensive. Uh, Carl, yesterday we were talking about the dogs of the Dow and the highest, you know, the stocks with the highest dividend yields. This is a traditional way of returning money to shareholders. You're more likely to see these tech giants invest it back into their businesses. And this is a creative way of doing so, especially that cloud story strikes me as particularly interesting because Google, of course, is lagging behind Microsoft and Amazon with that huge cash pile can sort of use its cash as an incentive for customers to sign on with them versus their rivals.
2: Yeah, we talked about the 12 trillion dollars trillion Dollars that have been raised in equity and debt so far this year, D. We talked about that yesterday. And, Neelay, whether it's CapEx, the CapEx boom in EVs or in chips or in streaming, I mean, maybe the story of the coming year is going to be less about household spending and more about enterprise spending.
4: Yeah, I mean, if you look at all of these markets, they all kind of feel winner-take-all. There are different stages of development, but streaming, that's a lot of money, people are only going to end up with a handful of subscriptions. It's not going to be this many players. So you got to spend the money now to lock in those consumers. With Google, you know, it's about jobs. It's about power. They got to stay hungry. They got to devour.
3: Yeah. And and to that point, Eli, I was looking at the cash piles, right? $142, $143 billion for Google. Amazon, by contrast, has an asset-heavy, cash-intensive business and e-commerce been building out that fulfillment network. It has only I say only about 30 billion dollars in cash. But when you're looking at the cloud wars pricing power and now that element of investing in companies to get them to sign on to your cloud, that's an interesting dynamic that could emerge next year.
4: Yeah, and I really think with Google especially, that move to investment is not just about getting people to use Google Cloud. It's about tying into that broader Google ecosystem so they can collect some data back for their advertising networks. I think the place yeah. you see it most clearly is with ADT, where they made a big investment in a smart home. So ADT products would use Google services over the other vendors to create that data relationship. Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah, perhaps uh, pushing into that super app territory that Mark Mahaney was talking about. It's interesting, though, also to see private companies doing this. We had the CEO of Databricks on and it, they are still private. They're using some of their cash pile to invest in their clients as well. So certainly a thread that will continue to follow well into 2022. Uh, now, in terms of the amount of cash on hand that each company has, as we were looking at Apple leads the pack here with $190 billion. Think about what it could do with that. Followed by alphabets, $163 billion. Microsoft, $140 billion. Amazon and Meta platforms uh, round out the pack with $88 and $69 billion, respectively. After the break, a check on crypto as Bitcoin looks to end the year more than 30% off its highs, plus the tax loophole Silicon Valley does not want you to know about. Those details later on this hour. Tech Check is back in two.
2: Time for a gut check on Bitcoin today. Down 5% over the last two days uh, to under 48K. Uh, the plunge coming as nearly 130,000 options contracts expire on Friday. That's according to an analysis by Coindesk. Those contracts are worth more than $6 billion. It's not all that's weighing on Bitcoin. Omicron concerns hitting the cryptocurrency hard as well, down about 17 percent in December as investors move away from some riskier assets. Still on track, though, uh, for the worst month since May, when Bitcoin fell over 35 percent. So many uh, colliding narratives, Neelay. For example, um, for those who believe Bitcoin is a play on a withering dollar, dollar is having its best year in six years. So you've got inflation, you've got payments, you've got the dollar, currencies, Turkey. Uh, it's, it's been a hard read all year long.
4: Yeah, you know, I think right now there's a big argument in Silicon Valley among some very rich people about whether the future of decentralized services is in Bitcoin or wh- whether it's in, quote unquote, Web3 ideas. Fundamentally. I have always believed that the only reason people care about Bitcoin is dollars. Ultimately, it's the only use of Bitcoin. It's generating dollars. I think all of the action and attention we've seen around crypto in terms of applications is in the Web3 ideas, is in NFTs, is in other kinds of decentralized services. And I think that's going to play out in an almost religious war fashion for the next year.
3: Yeah, and I think that's what the bulls would argue, that this is a long term, that the you know, volatility is well expected. Uh, personally, guys, I'm really interested to see what happens with stable coins next year. Many have called this sort of a potential black swan for the whole crypto complex uh, because they are so opaque. But as you see the value of Tether, the market cap of Tether and Circle and some of these other big stable coins increase and as central banks take a harder look at them, Are they getting less risky? Are they becoming more transparent? I'm not sure about that at all, but it will be fascinating to watch. And uh, it it could be it could be something to make or break the crypto market next year. And I I don't know where that goes, whether more regulation would break it or make it, uh, you know, more appealing.
2: Yeah, there's a lot of people who argue that uh, the regulation itself uh, furthers the maturation process of the currency, time will tell. And speaking of crypto, by the way, uh, Melissa Lee, our colleague, is hosting a special 6 p.m. Eastern time uh, tonight, Crypto Night in America. I don't want to miss that. Meantime, it has been a very big year, obviously, for cyber attacks, but sort of a mixed bag for cybersecurity stocks. Our Josh Lipton taking a look at the landscape there. Hey, Josh. So Carl, let's take a look at the hack. That's an ETF that tracks this sector. It's up about 7% so far this year, basically flat here for the last three months. But it gets more interesting when you look under the hood. Fortinet up about 140% in 2021. Big move. Third best performer in the S&P, by the way. Zscaler, another big move up about 60% this year. F5 jumping around 40%. CrowdStrike, a different story there though. It's in the red in 2021. Dan Ives over at Wedbush expects another strong year for this sector in 2022. Bottom line, he says companies understand the threat and then keep dedicating, he says, more of their IT budgets to cybersecurity products. His top picks, by the way, he tells me, Zscaler, Tenable and Palo Alto Networks, which, by the way, is up about 60 percent this year on track for its best year since 2014. Back to you all. All right, Josh, good stuff. Uh, Josh Lipton. There's a lot more tech check still to come you <small noise> releasing its final quarterly stock report for 2021. And big tech has officially lost its shine heading into the new year, at least according to these respondents. Only 15% of respondents say they're more likely to buy tech versus 35 saying they favored financials. And while Apple continues to hover right around the $3 trillion market cap, almost two-thirds of respondents see SunCloud's on the horizon, 58% saying it's reasonable to expect Apple will slow down its run in 2022.
3: Yeah, Carl, 182.86, that's the number we've all committed to memory, the level at which Apple hits that 3T mark. Really hovering around the flat line today, though. Speaking of, was Apple's decision to ditch Intel the right one? Our Todd Hazelton has a great piece on how that decision paid off. Catch that article. You really only need to look at the stock. And CNBC's full quarterly stock report at CNBC.com. Tech Check is back in two. It's been tech's tax loopholes since the 1990s, and it's an exemption called the qualified small business stock, a tax break that lets investors and small businesses avoid millions of dollars in capital gains taxes, If the startups hit it big, but a recent New York Times article called The Peanut Butter Secret, the lavish tax dodge for the ultra wealthy details, how it has become the favorite loophole in tech. The reporter behind that piece, Maureen Farrell, joins us now. Maureen, it's great to have you this morning. When I read your piece, I I really couldn't help thinking about it as like a succession prequel, how Logan (laughs) Roy dished out, you know, shares to his children to avoid taxes. So explain to us what it is, how it works, and how it can help sort of founders and VCs avoid taxes and their families.
5: Sure. So it was this um, tax break essentially created in the early 90s The idea was to spur investment in small businesses. Um, It was expanded uh, right around after the financial crisis. But essentially, it's this $10 million tax break. It's called on this type of stock for early investors in a startup, a small business, a pretty wide amount qualify. But it's essentially, you don't pay capital gains taxes on the first $10 million in profits. The thing is, as you said, like as, imagine it's the Roy family, you can spread that benefit and what it's called sometimes is peanut buttering. You can hand out this stock to family members, put it in trusts, and that can expand the benefit. You just multiply it. So that $10 million benefit, it can go up to that it can become 30, 40, 50. You give it to children, you give it to a spouse mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, that's, it just becomes a more and more dramatic tax
3: exemption. Right. And and Maureen, you did use in your article the real life example of Roblox, a CEO who, you know, gifted tons of shares to family members ahead of the IPO and early on. But the whole idea of this, it rests on the premise, too, that the company has to become big. So the hard part is actually becoming successful. And with a lot of these taxes, we have to ask, you know, if you take it away or you close that loophole, does that stifle innovation? Are there any kinds of those concerns within this it's a, fair
5: que- it's a fair question. It's a very good question. It's hard to say. Sure. I mean, you have to wonder, I mean, would it, would it really keep I mean, we've seen these huge, this huge amount of wealth creation. I mean, it's basically been unprecedented what we've seen in the last few years from, from the IPOs, Lyft, Uber, Pinterest. Would it really stifle it? it? It's kind of hard to imagine, though you don't know. If it would, if you one didn't. of the things.
4: Sorry. Carl. One of the things I hear about a lot is sort of you know there's concern about the rate of startup formation, right? Big companies tend to own everything, or they there's a kill zone around them. Do you think taking this loophole away would increase the rate of startup formation, or do you think it's actually providing capital to startups uh, or incentivizing providing capital to startups?
5: I mean, I think the idea was certainly incentivizing providing startup capital, but. I mean, we've seen, I don't know how much this specifically incentivizes it. I mean, there's so much capital out there for startups. I mean, we're seeing it. If you look at VC firms, I mean, every single day, it seems like almost a VC firm. And that's exactly the VC firm's benefit because you have to be an early investor in these companies to qualify for this tax break. And I mean, they're all raising almost record amounts of funds in a, in a way we've almost ever seen before, whether it's Sequoia or Tiger Global. Every day you hear of this record amount being raised to fund startups.
2: You know, Maureen, I wonder how you think uh, it fits with ongoing complaints about overtaxation in states like California. Uh, we've gotten comments like that from Elon Musk in, in the past
5: couple of weeks. It's an, uh, that's an interesting point. I mean, because clearly we've seen so many stories about people leaving California for Texas, people leaving New York, I mean, California specifically, but also New York for Florida. So it is, I mean, there is a lot of taxation in California in particular, and this is a tax break that a lot of Silicon Valley companies can qualify for, but it's a small amount. I mean, you have to be in these companies early, either, you know, as a founder, an early employee or a venture capitalist. So they're sort of different things, but um, it is an interesting point. And clearly it's been a hot topic lately, the taxes in California and this sort of migration out of state.
3: Yeah. Another hot topic has been sort of the perhaps disproportionate benefit to VCs. Of course, we had Jack Dorsey facing off against Andreessen Horowitz on Twitter. You kind of touch on this as well, saying that this loophole actually benefits, stands to benefits VCs much more because a founder can only maybe do this every time once if they create a very successful company. But VCs that are investing multiple deals multiple times a year can actually take advantage of this.
5: We were, we were pretty shocked to learn that. As, as you said, we, we have this exam, example of the Roblox family, but that's one time you do it as a founder. I mean, maybe you create another company, you can do this again. But VCs, the whole business is investing and in finding as many startups as you can. And we've heard at some, some firms, and this is successful firms, partners can collectively rack up almost a billion dollar in tax-free gains. This is by, you know, with each investment, and then plus spreading it to family members and multiple partners. These are huge numbers.
3: Yeah, it is, it is a fascinating piece, Maureen. Uh, and I encourage all of our viewers to go out and, and read it. Thank you so much for being with us, Maureen Farrell of The New York Times. Thanks for having me.
2: Quick programming note as we go to break this morning. Uh, do not miss tonight's special report, Crypto Night in America. Melissa Lee is going to break down the top trends for the sector with guests like Anthony Pompliano, Grayscale's Michael Sunshine, even Ben McKenzie from the TV show The O.C. It's going to be a great hour with Melissa at the helm. Stay with us.
3: One more thing in case you missed it over the holidays as we crack open our new Christmas gadgets, that means... Throwing away some of our old ones, but perhaps not as aggressively as Tom Brady, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers quarterback, seen here (laughs) smashing, wow, smashing the team's Microsoft Surface tablet after throwing an interception on December 19th. Then during an interview this week, Brady revealed that the NFL has threatened to fine him should he break another one. But he said he thinks the whole ordeal was probably, quote, pretty good marketing for Microsoft. (laughs) I don't know, Neelay. It's an aggressive throw, and I guess it depends. What's he going to get next? A MacBook Pro with a fancy M1 chip? <laughs> uh,
4: that's the best throw of that game, actually. If you watched it, you know I talked to somebody at Microsoft. They told me, "Look, Tom does this all the time."
3: <laughs> he does. Uh, it's Why? It's probably true.
2: Um, I'm sure a, he's a, always trying. He's throwing that thing all over makers. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it was not a good game for him, as we all know. I think uh, one of the sporting websites, Neelay, said it was his, officially his 48th pass of the evening. Uh, but it was a tough game for him. And uh, the frustration, obviously, uh, Microsoft bore the brunt of it. Always grateful to you, Neelay. Thank you. i Patel of The Verge. Let's get to the judge in the half.
1: You've been listening to CNBC's Tech Check. You can always catch us live weekdays at
0: 11 a.m. Eastern. True or false, Walmart has eye care. True. Stop by Walmart to save and browse top designer frames right where you already shop.
7: And they accept most insurance. Welcome to Easy Eye Care. Welcome to your Walmart.